Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Timothy this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you this morning, page 991 in your Pew Bible. And I have to say that I am excited about... A new year. I'm excited about a new year here at Grace Bible Fellowship. I'm excited because of what I believe God will do among us, through us, how He will use us, where He will take us. Now, I don't even know where He's going to take us, (laughs) but I'm excited of where He's going to take us because I know it's going to be good. Because I know, like, as we sang about this morning, He is always faithful always true. And what better way for us to end the year and then begin the new year, this week talking about God's salvation, next week talking about God's sanctification. So that's how we're going to straddle this new year. Before the new year, today talk about God's salvation, next week talk about God's sanctification. And all of this is why Jesus came. Why did Jesus have to come into the world? Why did he have to be born? Why is that significant? Why is that important? Did he have to come? Could we not have Christmas? Might be a rebellion with our children if we were to suggest that. But we believe and we say Jesus had to come into this world. It wasn't an option. It wasn't a choice for him. He had to come. And he had to come, as we say today, he had to come into this world to save. So would you stand with me out of reverence and respect for God's word as we read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. And after I read verse 17, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And together, we will say, thanks be to God, because we are thankful for his word to us. Let's read. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, 
Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. Unite our hearts to fear your name. And satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Israelites had seen it and experienced it all. The water that turned to blood. The frogs that infested the land, the gnats that clung to man and beast, the flies that swarmed, the livestock that died, the boils that broke out, the hail that bombarded from the sky, locusts that covered the face of the land, followed by deep, dreadful, permeating, soul-searching darkness. Then they had heard the haunting moans coming from the Egyptians with the desperation that followed the death of their firstborn children. And as they are leaving then Egypt, the Lord, the Lord himself, went before them to lead them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then they stood at the edge of the Red Sea. They saw it part down the middle. They walked through on dry land with a water of wall to their left and a water of wall to their right. And when they had completed that feat, they saw the water crash down upon Pharaoh and his army. What amazing, spectacular Wonders they had seen and experienced, along with equally terrifying and horrific sights, sounds that they would never be able to escape. What did they know? They knew redemption. They knew the Lord had purchased them. They knew victory. They knew the name of the Lord and that the Lord was a warrior who fought for his people. They knew salvation by the hand of God himself. The Israelites had seen it all. They had known it all. They had experienced it all. What more could they want? What more did they need? And how it was only a short time before They were grumbling, saying, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Verse 
Would we ever do that? Nuh-uh, not us. If we would have gone through that, saw all that, experienced that, been astounded and amazed by all of that, and then grumbled at what the Lord had done for us, how fickle we are just like the Israelites, and yet how great of a salvation have you known? And yet, where are you? Perhaps there is no better place for us to stand on the precipice of 2020 as we stare into the uncertainty of the future, the fear of the unknown in the year ahead. Maybe there is no better time to look at the great depths of God's salvation and God's steadfast love for us. And instead of going into the new year grumbling and how much, how much there is to grumble about, we must go into the new year grounded and standing firm on the very reason why Christ came into this world. He came to save sinners like you and like me. And with all that we know about the Israelites, with all that we know goes on in our own hearts, we know there's no use in saying, I've seen it all. I know it all. I've experienced it all. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on that day of testing where your fathers put God to the test when they saw his works for 40 years. I fear that we could unknowingly fall into some of those same tendencies to somehow downplay the absolute necessity of our salvation, to downplay the great lengths that were necessary in order to secure our salvation. And we would say with the Israelites, maybe it would have been better to die without salvation, but at least we would have been comfortable. At least we would have eaten our fill. At least our bellies would have been full. There is no place for us to get over our salvation. I hope and pray that you're not in that place. We can't get over it. We can never move on from our salvation. That's the great danger of the Israelites and it's the great danger of the church. Weak churches are weak because they failed to grasp the magnitude and the amazing feat that is our salvation. And so may we seek to grasp that, seek to understand that, seek to know that, stand in awe of that, be amazed by that, and know its magnitude and weightiness. That's what we're talking about in these verses. We're talking about the magnitude of our salvation and we're talking about how Jesus coming to save is magnifying certain things. Magnifying not like a microscope but like a telescope. Taking something that is grand and great and it's showing us just how great and grand it really is. Opening it up to all of its splendor and all of its glory. And so 
This, these verses are telling us what we must know and feel and believe if we're not to get over our salvation. So last week, we talked about Jesus coming to say, magnifies the grace of God. That thing that we do not deserve given to us as a great gift. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And that we would say with Paul, of whom I am the foremost, there is no worse sinner that I know of than me. I am the chief. I have the trophy. I am in the hall of fame. I am the first of sinners. Yet Christ has saved me. He's given me what I don't deserve. He's shown me his love. Now, this morning, come to that second point. Jesus coming to save magnifies the message of God. Jesus coming to save magnifies the message of God. You can find the outline in your bulletin if you find that helpful to follow along this morning. But that is point number two. Jesus coming to save magnifies the message of God. We've been dealing with this statement, this saying, the confession that Paul gives us in the second half of verse 15. We recognize that it is an important statement for Christian belief. Our lives as Christians, our hope as Christians, our joy as Christians depends upon this statement. It is foundational for the way that we live our lives. But Paul has set up this statement in the first half of verse 15. So what's that statement? Christ Jesus came to save sinners. That's the statement. And right before that, in verse 15 now, he's set it up. He's described that statement. It's a description that calls for a response. What does Paul say about this confession? First, he says that this say statement, this saying, is trustworthy. When something or someone is trustworthy, they are reliable, they are dependable, they are sure. And so this statement is reliable, dependable, sure. And it's trustworthy precisely because it's true. The very foundation of anything that is trustworthy is truth. If someone is deceptive or some, something is based upon a lie, you cannot and you should not trust it. In order for you to know the trustworthiness of this statement, you must acknowledge its truthfulness, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners is true. And we know that it is true because it is based upon the one who is the way and the truth and the life. The trustworthiness of the statement does not depend upon the statement alone. It depends upon the one who accomplished the statement. It depends upon the subject of the statement. It depends upon Christ Jesus. It is a statement that is an accurate description of who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the king. And it is an accurate description of what he came to do, save sinners. And that comes to us with authority. The trustworthiness of the statement is not up for debate. Paul says the saying is trustworthy. He doesn't say you must decide for yourself. You must test to see if it is really trustworthy. He doesn't say that. No, its inherent nature is that it is trustworthy and there is nothing that you can do. There is nothing that I can do to change that. But how the world would love to debate that, wouldn't they? They would love to question that. 
Did Jesus Christ really have to come? Did he really have to save? Are we really sinners? It would not be trustworthy. The statement would not be trustworthy if we determine its trustworthiness because man's judgment is feeble and fickle. Man's judgment is easily clouded, easily misled, and too easily deceived. But thanks be to God that the trustworthy nature of the statement is not dependent upon us. It's completely dependent on what God has done through Christ Jesus to save us. What else does Paul say about this statement? It's deserving or worthy of full acceptance. Out of the first description that it is trustworthy flows this descriptive response. Out of the first description comes this application then that it's deserving of our full acceptance. We are called to believe in its goodness, and in its truth. We are called upon to acknowledge it and accept it for what it really is. Our acceptance of the fact that Christ Jesus came to save sinners flows out of its trustworthiness. The two must go hand in hand. To know that it is trustworthy, but to not accept it is flat-out rebellion, and to accept it, but to not know its trustworthiness is utter foolishness. But why is it that Paul has put these descriptions before the statement? Why does he have to put these qualifiers before the statement? It's not because there's a problem with the statement. It's because there's a problem with us. Our problem is that our trust in the trustworthiness of the statement can waver. Our problem is that we struggle to accept it. Maybe I can show it to us this morning. This is a point that if you've been asleep, you might be awakened, but I would like everyone to stand, if you're able to, stand for a moment. Most of you have a chair in front of you there, and I want you to imagine for a moment that that chair is the statement. That chair is the statement, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And now I want you to put your weight on the chair in front of you like you believe that statement. Okay, you're doing that? You're putting your weight on that chair like you believe that that statement is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. All right, that's the object lesson. You may be seated. (laughs) What's the point of that? Because I'll be honest, I don't like... Those are weird things. I don't do those very often. I don't like them because they make me uncomfortable. Was anyone else uncomfortable during that? Because I wonder if for a moment that the way that you put your weight on that chair might be a reflection of the way that you live your life. That I would say, put your weight on that chair like you trust and fully accept that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, and you're like, yeah. Kind of feel silly doing this. Kind of feel like 
I'll put some of my way, kind of make it look like I'm, I'm doing it. And I wonder if we're ever in our lives like that. I feel kind of silly about this. I kind of, I kind of put some weight on it a little bit. I put a finger on it. When people see our lives, what do they see? They see someone who believes in the trustworthiness of the statement, who's fully accepted it, and if that statement was taken away, if that chair was taken out of your life, that you would fall and you would tumble and you would be in ruin because that is all that you have your whole life. Everything depends upon that statement. And if that is taken away, I have nothing. I am in utter ruin. My eternal destiny is in jeopardy because that is everything. Is this statement, is this confession what your life depends upon? Is this the statement that you lean upon with all of your weight? Is it the confession that if it were pulled out from underneath you, your life would be in complete and utter shambles? It is worthy and deserving of your full acceptance, not half acceptance, not a little bit of your acceptance, not reluctant acceptance, not half-hearted acceptance or faith. It requires and demands all of you, everything that you are, to trust and accept that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom you are the foremost. And it's this confession, I'm afraid, is under attack. It is attacked in that the person of Jesus Christ is attacked. I'm not necessarily talking about highly intricate theological debates upon the person of Jesus Christ. Although there are many who question his person, is he really God? Wasn't he just a good preacher? Wasn't he just a moral example? Many of these can just be answered by reading what Jesus has to say about himself. He claimed to be God. No merely good teacher or preacher accepts people worshiping them. No moral example says, take up your cross and follow me. Lose your life, sacrifice your life, die to yourself, and believe in me in order to find it. I fear, though, that the attack upon Jesus is even more subtle than that in our lives. Because we just simply, quietly, cut him out of the picture. He's sidelined. We forget about him in worship. We forget about him when applying the Bible to our lives. We forget about him and ignore him when we make daily choices and decisions in our lives. We effectively live like he is not Lord. And when your life is not and, and when your life is focused more on what you do than what on than what Christ has done. Let me say that again. When your life is more focused on what you do than on what Christ has done, I would dare say that something is out of whack and Christ Jesus is under attack. Because at the end of the day, you're failing to accept that Jesus Christ has come in this world to save you. But the statement is also under attack because we cut out sin. Are we really sinners? Do we really need to talk about sin? 
That doesn't sound uplifting enough. That doesn't sound encouraging enough. We want to feel happy and calling people sinners. Well, that doesn't help. How do we get around it? Well, we talk about sin less. The problem with that is the good news isn't really good news if there is bad news. And the bad news is really bad. If there is no bad news, no news that you are a sinner, no news that your sin separates you from God, that your sin has alienated you from God, that your sin has made you an enemy of God, then the good news isn't good, it's just news. But if the bad news is really bad, then the good news is all that more great and glorious. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That is the best news. It's the best news for us who are sinners. The statement is also under attack when we make salvation about our work. If you have to work to clean yourself up before God, if you have to work to make yourself righteous, if the call is for you to dig down deep and find some inherent goodness that is in you and empower it so that you can become a better person, then the truth of the gospel is under attack. If you believe that your salvation is dependent upon everything you do or don't do, how well you keep the rules, how well you meet man's religious expectations, or even your own set of standards, then this statement is under attack. Is salvation what you have to do to get to God? Because you can never do that. This whole statement, this whole confession is based upon what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, in order to save us. God moving towards sinful mankind in order to save them. May we not succumb to such attacks, but fully accept it and live by it until the very end. And we notice that these words that Paul uses here in 1 Timothy, he uses quite often in what are called the pastoral epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. Listen to other times that he says these things of trustworthiness and full acceptance. Listen, 1 Timothy 3.1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 1 Timothy 4.7-9, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. 2 Timothy 2.11, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And then Titus 3.8, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. You hear that over and over, Paul is saying, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So, and so we have to ask ourselves, why is it that Paul does this? And to understand the overall reason why Paul does this will help us better understand this verse. So why does Paul write these epistles? He writes them to instruct the church, and particularly church leaders and church pastors. He does it to warn against false teaching and teachers. And what is it that the false teachers do? They stray away from the truth. 
they leave behind the word of God. So when Paul repeats over and over again that this saying is trustworthy, that it is deserving of full acceptance, he is basing the ministry of the church around the faithful word of God. The statement is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance because it is the very word of God. What then is Paul saying to the churches and to the leaders of the church? The ministry of these churches is to be founded upon God's word. The focus of the church is on the saving message of God. The center of the church is the gospel. The focal point of the church is not upon its leaders. It's not upon personalities. It's not based upon the opinions of man or upon the leadership of any man. Thanks be to God. No, it's founded upon something more sure, more dependable, more reliable, more truthful, and more accurate than any man ever can be or will be. The church is based upon and built upon the word of God, the message of salvation that is completely trustworthy and worthy of all of our acceptance. And that means that it is a fixed statement. It cannot be changed. It must not be changed. Are you looking for assurance this morning? Is there doubt plaguing your mind? Where are you going to look for assurance? Where are you going to look to find that security that you're saved? To know for certain your eternal destiny. You don't look to man. You don't look to yourself. You look to Jesus Christ who came into this world to save sinners. It's him. It's his saving action. The work he accomplished on the cross. That is to be your assurance. You don't need to look anywhere else. The third point. Jesus coming to save magnifies the mercy of God. Jesus coming to save magnifies the mercy of God. Jesus tells a parable in the 18th chapter of Luke. Maybe you remember it. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It says something interesting at the beginning of that parable. Jesus sets it up this way. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It's the opening line to that parable. He told this parable because some people trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated other people with contempt. This parable was a rebuke, a correction, a warning. What's the parable? Both of these men went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, it says, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast an action showing the distraught and burdened nature of his mind and soul, and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Two completely different men, two completely different prayers, and two completely different results. 
For Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is truly the sinner's prayer. It's the prayer of everyone who would be saved. You see your need for salvation this morning? The prayer that you need to pray is very simple. Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it's this prayer that is the opposite side of the coin from grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, but here it's mercy that is not getting what we rightly deserve. Namely, not receiving the punishment, the judgment, the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. And who is it that cries out for mercy? It's not the innocent, it's the guilty who cry out for mercy. It's those who realize the depths of their sinful hearts. It's those who see that their sin is an affront to God, to an infinitely holy God. It's sinners who need to cry out for God's mercy. And that is what God had revealed to the tax collector How great is God's mercy for those who don't deserve mercy? How amazing is it that sinners should not get God's justice, but instead receive his mercy? And it's mercy sinners receive through Jesus' saving act upon the cross. That is what Paul says next. I received mercy. And Paul attributes his salvation to God's mercy. What does that mean? Salvation is not owed to any person. God is not unjust not to extend mercy to every single person without exception. If that were the case, salvation would be a matter of justice. If that were the case, then every person would have the right to demand salvation as a matter of God's justice. But God's salvation is not a matter of justice, it's a matter of mercy, And Paul says he received that mercy for a particular reason. It's likely that Paul puts himself forward as a typical representation of mercy. And Paul says, mercy was given to me for this reason. Because as the foremost sinner, as the first among sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, I receive mercy as the worst sinner so that the perfect patience of Christ might be displayed. Look at the perfect patience of Christ, the patience that saved Paul at precisely the right time, the patience of Christ that waited through the horrendous sin in his life, the patience of Christ where followers of Christ were persecuted by this man until that day when he met Christ on the road and Christ laid him out flat on his feet face. And then what happened? Through Christ's perfect patience that was displayed in Paul's life came complete and utter transformation. There was no disputing it. There was no denying it. The worst of sinners, the enemy of Christians, the rebel against God and his Christ was given mercy and there was a complete heart change, a complete reversal of this man's life. And here is God's mercy that results in eternal life. But it's only granted to those who, what? Believe in him. Do you want to know what the patience of Christ looks like? 
look at Paul. Jesus Christ should have wiped him out. Jesus Christ should have crushed him with the full force and weight of his judgment. Jesus Christ should have squashed him like the little cockroach that he was. How patient is Christ? How patient was Christ with Paul? How patient is Christ with sinners? You want proof that God gives mercy to sinners? You have to look no further than Paul. And it speaks volumes to us, dear Christians, how much patience, how much of Christ's perfect patience has been given to you until that time when you received God's mercy. You were not too far gone. You had not brought Jesus to the point where he had said, I've had it up to here with you. No, Christ's patience was displayed until you stood before him and beat your breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and how it should encourage you, dear brother and sister, if you are praying for someone in your life to be saved. You may be praying for a long while, you may be praying not knowing if there is any hope. You might think they are too far gone. There's no turning back for that one. They are out of God's reach. I don't know if they will ever be saved. Paul, the worst of sinners, was saved. They can be saved as well. Do not doubt the perfect patience of Jesus Christ. Maybe you are the one today who thinks that you are too far gone. You would say, I don't, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've said. You don't know the kind of person that I am. God could never save me. And to that I would say, yes, he can. <laughs> he does not wish that any should perish. Turn to him. Look at the work of God in Paul's life as an example and believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life and you will be saved. You will know a God's abundant mercy. You will go to your house as one justified by God, clothed with Christ's righteousness, knowing his great steadfast love upon you because God is merciful. Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but what? But according to his own mercy. It's by God's mercy that he saved us. And that is the very reason, that's the very reason then why we are called to be merciful. Blessed are the merciful because they shall receive mercy. Have you known God's mercy in your life? That should play out in other people's lives that you know around you. You should be merciful to them because you've known God's great mercy. You've known that you haven't received what you should have received. Last one this morning, number four. Jesus coming to save magnifies the glory of God. Jesus coming to save magnifies the glory 
of God. This is the natural outflowing of everything that's preceded it. The magnitude of the grace of God, the magnitude of the message of God, the magnitude of the mercy of God, where does that leave us? What follows as we plumb the depths and find the sweetness of joy contained within these? It leads us where it leads Paul to worship. It was right theology that led to right doxology. But it was also the magnitude of the gospel that so overwhelmed him that he had to praise God. He couldn't contain himself. He couldn't keep it in. He had to express these great truths about God as praise to God for who he is and because of what he has done. He expresses it first as this. God is king. He acknowledges God's rule and reign over everything, over all time, over the ages. That means God is king in the past. That means God is king now in this age and God will be king forever and ever on into the future. He is the supreme king who is in control over all things. And the king is worthy to be worshipped. He is the immortal God. That is, he is the God who can never die. Paul does the opposite of what fallen man does. Romans 1.23, it says there that man exchanges the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here, Paul praises God for his immortality. For him, there is no other choice. Who in their right mind would exchange the immortal glory of God for something that is mortal, temporal, unsatisfying, something that is created when the immortal creator of the universe is before you to worship? He is the invisible God. No one has seen the fullness of the God, of this God. And he is the only God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. All of these point to one thing. God is transcendent. That is, God is far above us, yet he is a personal God who loves us and gave his son for us. God has acted personally to save us. And that's why all honor and all glory is to go to him forever and ever. In fact, Paul says this later in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 through 16. The King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be glory and honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It's because we worship this God that we can trust and accept this statement. It's because of who God is that we can receive such a confession. And we see that it's because of Jesus Christ, he came into this world to save sinners. That that's God's doing. Salvation completely and utterly depends upon him. He is the sovereign God and we cannot and can never divorce his sovereignty from his work in salvation. It is the God, it is this God who saves And if there is any deficiency in your worship, if there is a deficiency in your desire to take in God's word, if there is deficiency in your prayer life, a deficiency in your singing, 
then it may be time to examine salvation again. See grace, see the message of God, see the mercy of God with fresh eyes, be astounded, amazed, and stand in awe of him. If you know this salvation, you have to. You have to worship him. You have to praise him. You have to proclaim, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Father, may our lives be lives of worship to you. May so great a salvation bring with it free expression of worship to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. There is no one like you. And there is no one who has done or can do for us what you have done for us in saving us sinners. Strengthen us, I pray, to trust and to fully accept these truths with our lives. And Father, if there is one here today who's had their eyes opened and comes to say, I've never put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I've never never beat my breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, that today would be the day that, that they would turn to you the day that they would be the day that they would lift up their lives to you. Today would be the day that they would call out to you and that they can do that right here, right now from where they are and that you will hear from your holy heaven and you will save them. You will give them this great salvation that we've talked about. You will give them your grace and your mercy And so that then their lives, like we pray all of our lives, would do what we were created to do, worship you. Let us never be satisfied with a life that doesn't worship you. But let us find everything, our all, in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.